KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. For our last episode of 2023, a mega banter of predictions for the year ahead. Changes at Paramount, box office struggles, and doom and gloom for the TV ad market. Banter buddies Lucas Shaw and Matt Bellany join me in reading the town's tea leaves for 2024. And an update, after we recorded, Axios broke the news that Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery had a meeting to discuss a merger, though the parties said no formal talks are underway. I am joined by two banter buddies to talk about the year ahead. Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Hi, Lucas. Hey, Kim. And Matt Bellany, our usual banter buddy from Puck News. Hello, Matt. Hello. So the year ahead, we're going to make some predictions and talk about predicaments. And I am the host, so I get to take the easiest one. Something has to happen with Paramount. That company is struggling. I think a lot of decisions that were not so good were made that we could talk about. But at some point, Sherry Redstone, and I think she's close, honestly, has to accept the fact that she can't show the world that she could run that place like her dad and that the world has changed. And even if she were the best executive in the universe and history, it's just a struggle for a legacy company right now. And Paramount, this dependence on cable channels that don't really register anymore is like high up on that list. What do you think, Lucas? I think it's a little bit of a miss perception that she's not willing to sell. I, I get, think it was true, Yeah. But now certainly it's true. I, I think, she, she, you know... On you, her terms. You've heard from people close to her for, at this point, a year or two, that she was open to doing deals. I think the challenge for them has been finding the deal because the company continues to decline. Most of the people are only interested in pieces of it. And the only real buyer for those cable networks would be private equity firms and with interest rates and the cost of raising money and all those things, they just might not want to do that deal. And so you have a lot of folks who can just sit and watch this thing circle the drain and get it at a discount price. And so the question for her is going to be, at what point do I take much less than I otherwise would just to get it done? Or can I convince someone to come in and make a deal that's not on the table right now? That point is now, I would say. <laughs> that point is now make the deal, do whatever you can, get the most money, and let someone else deal with these problems. It's funny, 20 years ago, I was looking at an old Wall Street Journal story. 20 years ago, Viacom was the most valuable media mm. company. And a lot happened. And a lot <laughs> has happened since then, namely the demise of the cable television business. I mean, Viacom was first and foremost well, a cable I mean, TV specific business. Specific to Paramount, let's not forget the looting that Philippe Domon did as head of that. And the lack of vision and yeah. the fact that this company languished while Sumner was you know, parading with the girlfriends. Right, all there of were lots things. of issues, but it is now the smallest of the legacy media companies. And we are in an age of consolidation. This is what happens. I'm going to pause a minute to be a little sentimental here because, you know, we saw Fox disappear. And I know there's still things on that lot. And every time I go on that lot, it really is a sort of a painful thing. There are these gorgeous buildings. There's so much history. And now we're going to you, see... You, you were nostalgic for Rupert Murdoch? Not for Rupert Murdoch, <laughs> no, to be clear. No nostalgia for Rupert, but nostalgia for the legacy of Fox in the day. And also now it's going to be Paramount gone and we've got others that might vanish and Hollywood is transforming before our eyes. But it is kind of sad. I'm with you. I hope that whoever or whatever happens to Paramount, that the Paramount name 
continues in some way, even if it's just a label, even if what they use it's for the movie. It's not the same, thing. though, right? Well, but the movie studio has been a division of other companies many times. Like, are we nostalgic for the days when Paramount was a part of Gulf and Western? As long as, <laughs> no. <laughs> as, long as the lot stays the way it is and the name exists in some way, I think it's okay. But Paramount, I feel like, along with Warner Brothers, are sort of the two movie studios that mean the most to people. And it would be very sad well, if it just completely went away. Also. <laughs> yeah, but Disney is like a broader corporate brand. Right. Well, Disney is the only real brand. So. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Warner Brothers Discovery, so let's go there. What do we think lies ahead for David Zaslav? I mean, he's sort of gotten on his legs after a lot of starts and stops, but, you know, it's very precarious because it's like all the legacies with the cable channels. He's got that problem of trying to keep it alive as long as possible and figure out something that makes money in the future, which streaming so far has been the opposite of, Matt. April is the date. April right. is when the reverse Morris Trust rules expire. This very complicated thing that yeah, they, they put together. Yeah, they can't do deals mm-hmm. until then. And in April, they can. So I have always thought from the beginning that John Malone, the key shareholder there, his goal was to combine these assets with either Paramount or Comcast, NBC Universal, or something else to make this a bigger, more powerful company and to just kind of chug along and hopefully make a business out of that until it happens. And I think next year we'll probably see at least an announcement of some exploration, if not an actual deal. Yeah, I suspect there'll be a lot of smoke. But I don't know that they're, unless they choose to do something with Paramount or unless this long rumored NBC Universal Comcast deal happens, I don't know what else it is. He's also a big fan of joint ventures. And so I think it's just as likely that instead of there being a, you know, a, a merger or some big transaction, that they try to combine Max with another service in some way, or when they bid for NBA rights, they don't do it on their own. There's just going to be a lot of, let's find other people to add to our scale in any way we can. Yeah, speaking of not doing it on our own, <laughs> Disney. <laughs> Disney has been trying to figure its way out. You know, Bob Iger came back about a year ago, Oh, my God, did he find problems stacked up? And, you know, there is a question. There there are activist shareholders, Nelson Peltz, backed by Ike Perlmutter, the former Marvel head, and uh, now with Jay Rasulo, who used to be the CFO and a contender for the crown back in the day when no one was really a contender for the crown because Bob Iger wasn't leaving. So there is just this litany of trouble do we think that Bob digs himself out of it? Do we think that these guys get traction because he's had so many difficulties and the stock just lies there? What do we think? I don't think he digs himself out of it next year. There may be signs of progress, but you know, you look at some of the issues at the company, most of their creative studios, Pixar, Marvel, all having a hard time. That's a multi-year rebuild to figure out how to solve those problems. The situation with the linear TV networks, you know, your live networks is not getting better. It's getting worse. But the best thing that they will have going for them, which I think could improve the performance of the stock, is they have gotten away, I think, with dramatically increasing prices on the streaming side without losing a lot of customers. And so we should see really improved financial performance out of the streaming business. The question is, will that be enough for Wall Street? If the streaming business goes from losing a couple billion dollars a year to being break-even, is the stock going to get a little bit of a pop or not? 
Iger has been a deal guy throughout most of his tenure at Disney. Now, in his first tenure, that meant buying companies to build up their IP trove that they now are exploiting. But I think that he's going to look to the deal market to try to figure this out. And what that's going to mean, I think, in 2024 is they will find some deep-pocketed company, whether it's a tech company or others, to come into ESPN to bulk that up, to help them afford the sports rights that they believe are necessary to help take ESPN over the top. I think that they might look in the video game world. I don't know if they're necessarily an acquirer of one of the big video game studios, but I think that he's probably looking there. And then there, you know, obviously this Hulu integration is going to be key to the streaming strategy, whether it becomes one app, which is what it's looking like it's going to become, or whether Hulu becomes a tile within Disney+. Plus. All of that will be figured out in 2024. I have one Disney question that I feel like is sort of the other big one is, do you think that by the end of 2024, Bob Iger will have anointed a successor or set someone up to start learning the things that they need to do to be Well, I think absolutely there's so much pressure on him now. I mean, he cannot do this thing again, and I doubt he would really want to because he's had such a tough time lately. Uh, you know, but, he he'll, in, but you think he'll anoint someone? He brought in this uh, CFO from Pepsi. He's not a Disney guy, which is usually a big deal, but he's certainly a seasoned exec. Maybe it's a combo platter, him plus a creative exec. But I don't think he can just skate along the way he did in the past and say, I'm the most important one, so aren't you happy I'm staying? NBC Universal, of course, also the same, same story, trying to make the cable channels go as long as you can, maybe looking at deals. I mean, we have to all consider the antitrust issues that will affect any of these deals that are sort of seem to be, you know, talked about, speculated on. But some of them you think, okay, that is just way too horizontal and the, that they'll, they'll, it'll get killed. And some of them don't seem that horizontal potentially. So we'll see how they work that out. Anything in particular from NBC Uni, you guys? I think just how serious they are about needing to do a deal. Paramount seems really unlikely for them because they own NBC, buying a company that owns CBS. But I think they did have talks that went quite They did, far. but getting a deal where they own two broadcast networks through, I mean, maybe that happens well, maybe if there's a some, Trump right? presidency because Sherry, Redstone, and Trump, I apologize, <laughs> Kim, are so close. But otherwise, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery is the big one looming out there. Or do they revisit a gaming deal because they had explored a, a deal right. for electronic arts? Right, right. And then our friends at Netflix... I mean, they just continue, right? They're pushing people toward the ad tier for all of these services. The ad-free is getting really quite expensive, and it's a mess. But Netflix is the big head start and the global player, right? Yeah, I think the big question in 2024 is what's going to happen at Netflix once they have captured all of these freeloaders from the password <laughs> sharing crackdown that has been ongoing for most of this year. The I know, Kim's pointing at herself. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that, you know, it's a, it's a big challenge for them. They have pulled that lever. They always had that sitting in their arsenal of things that they could do. They finally pulled it. They have gotten the bump. The Netflix subscriber numbers have been going up, up, up this year. They've pulled away. But that could be tough comps for next year once this has already been pulled or whether perhaps they, you know, can get more aggressive and keep squeezing people and this will play out over multiple years and finally they'll get every last freeloader out there. But I think that's going to be a, a real question next year. Well, the world it? is finite. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the world is not infinite. And they, well, the country was not infinite. And they hit that wall. And the world is not infinite. And I think some places will say, this is a great business. Maybe we'll jump in and do our own stuff locally on these international yeah, shows. What they do have working in their favor is most of these other U.S. media companies have scaled back 
or sort of paused their international expansion because they're trying to save money. So they're not facing as much competition from them. And what a lot of the local players just can't compete financially with Netflix. There are a lot of markets where Netflix is still not very big or doesn't make a lot of money. You know, they've made a lot of fuss about how much better they're doing in India, but they still have a tiny customer base there. Well, and the ARPU, the return for consumer, is not so great. Very low. But you look across the U.S., Western Europe, Latin America, and at least a couple of the big markets in Asia. And Netflix is pretty dominant, but I think Matt's right. Honestly, both of you, there's only so many people they can sign up. And so, yes, maybe they'll get some extra money from advertising, but what is going to be that next lever that they can pull? And will that be what maybe finally gets them into sports or something like that? And they are going to have a little bit of a blip, as are all the companies, I think, the first half of 2024 because of the strike delays. Coming up after the break, more mega banter. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Scene on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. I'm talking with Matt Bellany, a founding partner of Puck, and Lucas Shaw, head of Bloomberg's entertainment team, for our 2024 preview, Mega Banter. So the other big thing about Netflix was that data release. And, you know, they could only hide the potato for so long, you know, because they sell ads and advertisers want to know (laughs) what they're getting for their money. So they dumped a ton of data. I have previously confessed uh, that I am terrible with data, but you guys both love this. How does it affect Netflix, though, Lucas? Does it make a difference in the life of Netflix? I mean, I'll say one thing that was very striking to me. The bad movies, you know, by consensus, not very good movies like Gray Man, turn out to have performed really well, which somewhat answers the mystery of why are they still doing this? And, you know, David Zaslav came in and said, we're not making movies for for the streamer anymore. That's crazy. Not expensive ones anyway. And it seemed to be very sensible. But meanwhile, Netflix is feasting on this stuff. So I don't know. Does the data make you see it all differently? This is a harder one for me to answer because I pay really close attention to the data that Netflix puts out every week and the Nielsen data every week. So A lot of folks that I work with were, like, surprised when they saw what was at the top of the list for Netflix. And I wasn't because I've written about it so much. I don't think that it changes a lot for Netflix because they've already had access to all this information. And at least when it comes to the shows that perform, they already put it out publicly. But it means that, one, twice a year, there will be a reminder of, like, what works and also, by the way, what doesn't work. And I think that second part is the big one is... You're going to have a lot of folks who made stuff 
get exposed for how little it gets watched or how it, the fact that it's like the 150th most popular right. title on Netflix. Guess what? That means you're not getting your 20% salary raise in season three. Have we figured out how many of the shows with this dump would have made that new thing that the strike delivered for? It's the... tough because the strike threshold is domestic and the Netflix numbers are global. Oh, I did a piece using some third party data that showed, I think, think it was like 5% of Netflix originals. You know, I think they would say it's probably higher because that included things that like reality that are not part of the deal. But you're looking at 15 or 20 scripted titles that would be eligible for that bonus, I think. I have a hotter take on the rationale for doing this. And I think it's the start of a new era that Netflix is heading into. For most of its existence, Netflix has paid creators as if their shows are hits. They pay them their quotes plus a premium to buy out their back end. Right, because obviously in success, you know, if you were in the old world, you became wealthy beyond imagining. And with Netflix, that option isn't there. So you take your little premium up front and there's no risk to you, but you don't also get the upside. Right. And the volume that Netflix is now dealing with and the creative community environment they're now dealing with, where Netflix is now way bigger than all the other players... I think Netflix wants to pull back on that model and stop paying people like their shows are hits when they're not hits. And what do you do first to stop doing that? You put all the numbers out there and you show people exactly what is driving viewership. And it's a small fraction of the overall Netflix offering. And then the next step will be, you know, we're actually not going to do the 20% premiums anymore. We're going to just do that if you're in the top 1,000 shows. Which causes or if people to say the nasty thing of like, oh, congratulations, you invented television. Exactly. <laughs> no, I know. But I think that this is the power position that Netflix is in right now because they are uniquely able to create global hits. And we've seen it with the other stuff we've talked about with Suits and with all these other big shows. And yes, there are hits on other platforms, but they don't have the ability to be massive the way that Netflix does. So they're going to start to leverage that power. And I think you're going to see the squeeze put onto creatives. You think so? I think it's a safe bet because, look, as part of both of the Guild deals, Netflix and other studios now have to pay these bonuses. And one of their talking points against it when these was being negotiated was, we're basically paying you a bonus up front. Now we also have to pay you a bonus on the back. And they'll try to shift to a model where they only pay a bonus on the back and it's only for certain types of shows. Now, I don't know that they'll be able to roll it back across their entire slate. But I do sort of like Matt's idea of like, you get a bonus if you're in the top 50 shows or something like that. I mean, you saw the reverse hockey puck of consumption. I mean, it's the top 1,000 shows that deliver the lion's share well, of viewership. And then it flatlines and goes down, and most of the shows are watched by nobody. But the thing to remember is that I think that data release included more than 18,000 titles, and there are a bunch of titles that weren't even included, and that's because it was global. And so there are a lot of titles that Netflix licenses in particular markets or regions or things. And so I don't know how many of those titles really merit comparison with those that they have globally. Like the Netflix catalog in the U.S., I think, is probably six or 8,000 titles. There's probably 10,000 of those that you can just ignore. Yeah, it was funny because Friends and The Office were listed, and those famously are not on Netflix in the U.S., but they're very popular in the territories where they Friends still have them. One, Friends actually does really well on Netflix wherever it was. It was like a top 100 show. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I just say that, you know, I've been saying this for a long time. Netflix is like this tech glacier that slowly, slowly, they come in. We're new. We're smart. We're not going to do all the stupid stuff you guys did, you dummies in Hollywood. And little by little, they're like, oh, maybe that makes sense. And maybe we should try this. The thing they're really holding out on is a true theatrical release of a movie. And it's been a lot of push and pull when you want to award. Don't think that's happening anytime soon. That is the, it seems to be the one thing. I mean, you know, that was like, we're not going to advertise. We're not going to do this. But the one thing where they're still clinging to that original idea is in a and they don't, theatrical. And they don't license their titles outside. Yet. Yet. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that will happen in 2024 either. They don't have to. They're doing fine as it is. And they're watching what Apple is doing in theaters. And I don't think they're jealous of that. They're maybe jealous of the projects that Apple gets because they promise theaters. Yeah. But I don't think they're jealous of spending almost $300 million on a Scorsese movie and then grossing 150 worldwide. Yeah. That is, we'll see if, you know, Netflix goes and buys the U.S. rights to May, December. And Maestro, Netflix will have all of these Oscar hopefuls that they will probably have made or acquired for less than the cost of just Killers of the Flower Moon or just Napoleon. You know, but if they don't win and Killers wins, that will be two Best Picture Oscars for Apple and zero for Netflix. Well, I don't, I don't think Netflix has a movie that anyone thinks is a real contender. Am I wrong? I mean, they would say Maestro, but yeah. we'll see what happens. Well, you just have to sort of say, if you had to kill Netflix, that <laughs> Apple comes out with the first movie and then gets the Best Picture Award with Coda, and then poor Netflix, <laughs> like poor Netflix, they've been throwing so much at Scorsese or Quaron, and it just doesn't happen. So it, it is the one thing I think that Ted would really love. Picture, yeah, to have. <laughs> that is like the Veruca Salt of the Oscars, where he he's just <laughs> stomping his feet. I want it now. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna leave that alone. <laughs> now let's give a little love to the two biggest agencies and start with CAA. The French billionaire François Henri Pinot bought a majority interest in CAA from TPG, which had been previously a big investor. They paid $7 billion for that. And I think Brian Lord, who has emerged as the first among equals of the management at uh, CAA, is a guy who doesn't mind getting to play in a lot of luxury brands, but uh, there's grumbling uh, about how the money gets split up. And we've seen it at both the big agencies. You know, there's a huge windfall for the top, top people. And then the other people who have been toiling in the vineyard at upper level, like high level jobs, are like, what about us? And that creates tension. Yeah, big tension. And the way it happened is there's a lot of people with equity in CAA, meaning that they have stake in how the agency does. And because of the way this transaction worked, this was TPG, their former investor, being bought out by Pinot. This is not a sale of the company. So a lot of those people that were expecting some big payday from this $7 billion valuation of CAA are not getting it. CAA is telling them, oh, you can cash in you know, 10, 15% of your equity, but that's not that That's much. not the big payday. No. And now CAA is part of a family office. It's not like they're now going to level up and there's some other buyer out there that's going to do a deal for CAA. They're probably going to be in the Pinot's family office for many, many years. So that prevents another potential transaction. But if you're a CAA agent who's unhappy, other than starting your own management right, company, which a go? lot of agents right. do... Yeah, where are you going to go? Endeavor, which owns WME, has problems of its own. There's UTA, which is really the only other alternative because everything else is so small at I'm this sure point. I'm sure they'd be thrilled. And we already know that Ari Manuel has been dialing people and uh, others. Oh, yeah, but, trying but to Ari has to figure out. I mean, that 
Endeavor, yeah, he doesn't have a great story to tell, right? Well, now. no, Endeavor <laughs> is going to go private probably right. because they have not gotten the stock bounce that they thought they would get. They acquired the WWE this past year. They spun that off into this new company, TKO, that Endeavor owns 51% of. And the stock did not respond. And the narrative on Wall Street has not been what Ari thinks it's value. Well, and is. I would say, I think maybe there's some misgivings on the part of Silver Lake, the big investor, about what kind of a CEO of a public company Ari is. You know, now he's in the sack through TKO with some really unappealing people. Well, but, are, okay, they're unappealing people, but the business is pretty appealing. The business is appealing, but, you know, that blows up and creates blowback and potentially, and then you lose somebody because they I don't know, end up in prison for assaulting a woman. I mean, Conor McGregor. You say that as, you know, Disney is dealing with Jonathan Majors being found guilty. Well, Every media company has these problems. Well, I guess the question to your point, Kim, though, is whether the folks at Silver Lake still believe that Ari is the right leader for the organization. Yes. Maybe because of what you're talking about with the personal problems, but I think more than anything... You look at this business and they took it public and it hasn't performed. Yeah. And they've they've given him a lot of money and a lot of leeway over the years to buy things. And he's been very successful at building this empire, but was not successful at convincing investors to value it at what it probably should be worth. Well, it was always a cobbled together thing. And people were like, OK, you got the bull riders and the yeah. this and the that and the other thing. And it didn't gel into a thing. And it was sort of a controlled company because Silver Lake had a lot of say over what could happen. And that tends to depress valuations as well. Listen. A lot of companies are better as publicly traded companies. A lot of companies are better at privately held companies. And I think that this particular collection of assets is probably better as a privately held company. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to wrap that up with Ari. I feel there may be change in the wind and uh, we'll see. But I sense restlessness even within the agency part of Endeavor and the, you know, IMG and all the other things they threw together. I feel like there is... A little bit like, okay, he did the thing. It didn't pay off that well. And maybe now we can look at a new leadership. Okay, so we're going to do our predictions. Uh, one prediction. I mean, we've talked about a lot of these things, but we're going to go with the one that you're going to put your money on. And because I'm the host, I'm going to let myself go first. <laughs> and I'm going to take the easy one, which is paramount. I think we all agree something has to give in the year 2024. Do we all agree? Just yes or no? <laughs> yes. Sure. Sure. So I took that. I apologize for taking the easy one, but Matt, you go. I believe that the domestic box office will fall below $8 billion next year. And that would be about a 30% decline from 2019. This year, we're not going to get to $9 billion, mostly because this last quarter has been terrible. And a lot of the movies that like Dune and Ghostbusters were pushed to next year. But with the delays associated with the strike, the first couple months of 2024 looking really bare and the summer hollowing out because no Mission Impossible. And there was at least one big Disney title that moved too. Yeah, the Captain America movie yeah. moved and they pushed a Pixar movie to 2025, not Inside Out 2, but the other one. I just think that the momentum, barring some kind of Barbenheimer phenomenon or something, that it's going to be bleak next year. And below $8 billion is my prediction. I will just stop for one second on Mission Impossible because it did underperform and they've got the next one. I mean, I've read a lot about that movie. Tom Cruise dragged it through the pandemic, which was kind of heroic, you know? you got to give them some credit for that. They've got these two movies that cost a fortune and you're holding the next one to 2025 when it's all 
all said and done, I imagine, ironically, they will end up losing so much on that. Well, and aren't those deals, you would know this, but aren't the deals structured so that he just gets to take a bunch of money off the top almost no matter what? Oh, he gets it's not like it used to be. <laughs> well, no, he, it, not, but it is a really, really It's very favorable, deal. but it's not like the old days where Paramount would lose millions and then he would make a fortune. Yeah, but he comes out, I predict, well, maybe Paramount, not so much. Lucas. My prediction is I think that the TV ad market gets worse, not better. And you'll see really steep double-digit declines. There'll be a little bit of a lift because of the election. The election, and, yeah. And that'll help. Mm-hmm. But I think on everything that's not political, these companies are going to get crushed. And the comps with 2020 are going to be unfavorable, I think. I just want to play with this question that I've been thinking about. Maybe you guys have a couple of thoughts about going forward. You know, there is now this model where it's, I think, accepted by everybody but Netflix that it might really help a profile of a movie to have a theatrical run then go to the streamer. Will we come up with some way of judging, like, the movie cost this, it did this, it's going to do that on the streamer, therefore it's worth it, even though it lost money in the theaters? It's really tough. And I think when you add in the premium video on demand money, which is becoming an increasingly lucrative window for a lot of these companies, they're able to capitalize on that theatrical marketing spend in new ways that changes the economic equation. What you need is to have one company both do the Netflix model and the studio model and be able to compare the results of those movies on streaming. But then each streaming. movie is its own thing, so yeah, it's not it's... so easy to compare, right? I mean, I just think it's a big question because, as you guys know, the, you know, re- the marketing spend on that for a theatrical release is a lot. <laughs> and therefore, this is something I'm sure the bean counters are trying to figure out. But right now, I don't have a sense of it, you know. Well, we'll see where we come out in the year ahead. Thank you, Lucas Shaw, the managing editor of Media and Entertainment for Bloomberg. Thanks, Kim. And thank you, Matt, founding partner, as always, of Puck News. Happy New Year. And that's the business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream the business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next year on The Business. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.